As we return to the <clears throat> second <coughs> Corinthians series, uh, I think we need to do a quick recap because um, it's been over a month now since my last message um, on Second Corinthians five. <clears throat> and there are a few things that I think we need to settle so that we receive today's text, um, which is very important text uh, passage. Um, and not only just in Corinthians, Second Corinthians, but an entire New Testament in the Bible. Um, but as, as I mentioned in the beginning of this series, Second Corinthians is a unique letter. It's very personal letter. Not personal because Paul's sharing a lot of, you know, personal stuff only. But it's personal in a sense that Paul reveals his heart. So it is really contrasting in the, in the uh, spirituality and Christian culture we see and Paul's heart and how, what Paul reveals about his way of life and the way that he reveals the nature of his ministry and life. And because of that, Paul's writing in response to the needs of Second uh, Corinthian, I mean, Corinthian church, which he planted, he founded himself, but because of relational doubts and, and false apostles from Jerusalem, and there was a strange tension going on. So in Second Corinthians, he writes in response to those things, and he defends himself, not because he is concerned about his own rights, but because of Corinthian church's acceptance of his apostleship means the true salvation, because the gospel of Christ has given through Apostle Paul to them. So in so doing, um, what happens is there's some insert, insert going on, digression. Um, he writes about his travel and on, on, up to chapter 2, verse 13. And if you read through chapter five, 7, 5, it connects directly. But somewhere along the line, the chunk of insert, digression, happens. I think Paul felt this urgency to reveal about why he does what he does. And this insert and digression becomes one of the most important part and theme of this letter. There is a temptation in my heart every time uh, when I teach uh, from Scripture, uh, the desire to be relevant, to desire 
to itch where I'm mean, scratched where where this itch is, just practical stuff. But what happens is we become very shallow people who are looking for practical things, and then rather than God become the center and the sovereign God who guides us in into His plan, we insist and demand that God becomes useful to our end, to make us feel inspired and feel good. Today's is an important passage, and we could draw the applications. I long to do that, but we need to do some work and observation to understand the meaning out of the context rather than meaning into the context. There are four things I just want to mention. Um, the, as he shares about his nature, the nature of his ministry, the past uh, few weeks ago, in chapter 4, verse 16 through 10, is he's sharing about hope in ministry. Why? The false apostles, and he calls them super apostles from Jerusalem, were known as a triumphalism people. Like a, a modern day prosperity gospel who has to have wealth and health every single time. And then he, they were flamboyant and flesh, uh, fleshly in a sense that uh, their titles and their the letters of recommendations were their main thing. On the other hand, Paul was going through much affliction. And we will read about more about that in chapter 10, 11, 12. And suffering. And he actually brings this thing as one of his central themes. But what he does is, I take this because of hope in Christ Jesus. In his own words, in chapter 4, 16 through 17, Paul writes, So we do not lose heart, through, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Compared to what's coming, the length of the glory and the weight of that glory, this is nothing. He calls it light momentary affliction. The hope. By the way, every time when we read Paul's hope or in Paul's ministry, we should substitute our names and our hope as Christ followers and our life and ministry. Paul's life itself was a ministry. He didn't have a two different parts, public ministry and private life. But in writing to Corinthians, 
he writes about apostolic ministry. Second thing we need to remember is Paul's motivation in ministry. 5, uh, 11 through 15, is that there are twofold, namely fear of the Lord and love of Christ. In verse 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are not in right, if we are if we are in right mind, in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Fear of the Lord, why? Because he just mentioned that every single one of us will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And everything will be equalized by the judge, righteous judge. If I think about the judge will be Christ, not the people. And if every deed we do, we do in this earth will be judged by the righteous judge and everything I do. I ought to do it in fear of the Lord. It's not being scared. It is reverently respectful. When you think about someone that you have a deep respect. And something that you really enjoy, you want to excel in. And when that person comes in, there's a sense of reverent fear, respect. Of course, God, the creator and sustainer of our life, we ought to have that fear, terror, before the, our sovereign Lord because our life is in his hand as well. So when we sin, or when we do good works, we need to think about God sees every single deed including our hidden motives in our heart. That will be at the judgment seat. So Paul's motivation is not because of popularity, it's not because how people think, Corinthians think that he's not, uh, not a good speaker, not a strong enough, like those false uh, apostles. He knew that every single time that he needs to be motivated by the reverent respect for God. Secondly, love of Christ. One, one way to think about love of Christ, one died for us. So all died. He's imputed death on us as we have paid the penalty of sin. Now his resurrection is imputed put it on us as well. So we live. So the reason why he died on the cross for us is that so that we might live, no longer live for ourselves, but live for the one whom, who died for us. Christ's love controls us, compels us, drives us. Another way is our love for Christ because he has done. 
So when you are serving, uh, when you do the Christian act behind the scene, working with the poor, or even serving the children and youth here, welcome team, or volunteering at Sheepfold or Foot Bank, whatever you do, your motivation ought to be because of the love of Christ is overflowing. And because your love for Christ drives you to do that. That's Paul. And that should be our lives as well. Number three, Paul's perspective in ministry and, and should, should also say life. He no longer views people from worldly perspective, worldly standard. But because every believer in Christ is a new creation. 511. I'm sorry, that's the wrong passage. 516 and 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things passed away, the new has come. The new generation, regeneration in Christ happens not because we improve ourselves, but because that new creation, that, that word is Genesis word. God created this heaven and earth and created man and woman. The second creation happened Initially, our soul and spirit has been regenerated, rebirth, the new person. When we die physically or Christ comes back, our body will be resurrected from Christ, I mean resurrected from the dead, like Christ's body. Then that body will be glorified body. And that will be the new creation and God's glory that we will enjoy forever. So in this context, Paul's now driving at, this is the central message and ministry that I have, which is the, today's passage in 18, verse, uh, chapter 5, and all the way to verse 2 of chapter 6. Chapter division has been created, several hundred years later. So it, it, Paul's thought is just continuing on this. So this is more right bracket of the text. Let's think about today's passage in this way. What are five vital truths about the ministry of recon reconciliation? And first of all, we need to preface this before we delve into the text, the word reconciliation is a popular word these days. Usually, reconciliation between people. Racial reconciliation, reconciliation of a broken relationship between father and son, or mother and daughter, or father and daughter, or you know, between the relatives, or between close friends, that you became a rejected nobody, 
how do I restore that and reconciliation? And there is a reconciliation organizations and and um, the legal sense that there is a people who are helping to reconcile within the organization as well. But when we think about today's focus, the message or ministry of reconciliation is with God. This is unique. We must not project ourselves to our reconciliation with others. So that's the first truth we need to pay attention to. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The truth about origin of reconciliation, it is solely from God. We cannot make peace with God and try to make peace with God. That language is there. I made peace with God. Well-meaning people, and sometimes Christians say that too, that's theologically wrong. Because there's nothing you can do to make peace with God. You need to receive peace with God that God has already done in Christ Jesus. Why? Between two people or two organizations, they're sinful people, sinful organizations. They're always fault, not, not just, it takes two to tangle in that sense. But with holy God and sinful man is absolutely one-sided. Think about um, the parable of lost son. The son did whatever that he would do to be autonomous from his father, receiving his inheritance ahead before his father died and went away to the foreign country and wasted his money. Do you remember what he was doing while he was coming back? He was reciting. Father, I have sinned against you and the Father in, in the heaven. Um... I'm not asking you to receive me back. I just want daily food that your daily servant get to eat. Because he was staying with the pigs and eating. It was on that, on that in, inedible food. Pigs can eat and survive. Human beings cannot. But he was that hungry and that desperate. And he came to himself and coming back. All the reconciliation work has been done by the Father. There's nothing he could do. Just think about that. The scripture says the father ran and hugged him and kissed him. He did not stop kissing, kissing him. He smothered him with kisses. 
Just imagine that. That much of affection was available. He didn't send a telegram or email or text. Can I go to your house and I'm really sorry? Every day, that picture of father waiting. So the parable said, basically, the long ahead, the father saw the lost son coming in. How did he know? He probably everyday practice on him, of him, just habitually. Maybe today will be the day that my son will come back. Brothers and sisters, you often heard God's grace can transform you. The transforming power of God's grace. Let me tell you this. Until the grace of God shocked you, it will not change you. Because you're going to take it for granted. You're going to feel entitled. Oh, it's supposed to happen to me. Everything is from solely from God. It's not synergistic work between man and God, holy God. It is a monogistic, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Sovereign will of God. Because of his grace and love for us. I'm going to hold back myself. There's some things that at this point I want to jump in, but because of the five truths, and we are waiting. Number two, the truth about recipients of the reconciliation. The message of reconciliation is. For the whole world because of God's forgiveness by grace in Christ. Verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. One of the dangerous things that we ought to remind ourselves, put guard on as we press it on and even beyond this facility that we want to limit that. God's grace and message it's so good, cozy little church, home church. I, I know many of you express that. The one thing I love about our church is it's like family. It's very close. And 
all that is putting it together, it's not sound, look like a major organization, mega church type of stuff. In other words, it's very small. The vision for our church is not to be small. The vision for our church is by guided by God himself not to induce our human efforts for manufactured growth because it, that would be a bad idea. I came from that kind of organization. Continue to be led by the Spirit but and yet continually focus on outward. There are people in Indonesia that John Lee is working right now. There are people in China, Boy and Cindy, under the severe persecution these days, who need the message of reconciliation. In Thailand and Myanmar, Bob and Grace is working hard toward to that because every people group needs the reconciliation message. How about among us? It doesn't matter your doctor, your lawyer, your plumber, or your homestay mom. Every single person needs this message. Let's turn that around in the asking this way. Do we think of some people, oh, they're not going to like the message. I'm not going to bother. because they're not gonna, I know they're going to reject it anyway. They're into sin. I make them uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable. If all has done by God, not only humility, the God's compassion and love should be our our drive. Would you pray for me? I, the reason I our church our family moved is because we need a bigger place to to care for my parents-in-law. There's so much drama. I mean, it's not so easy to say generously, ah, I'm going to take care of the aging parents-in-law and their health, declining health. But what kills me is their spiritual state. My unresponsive heart to them I kneel down before the Lord. Ask you to pray for me too. To have compassion for the condition of their spirit. And some of your parents and some of your relatives, some of your close friends might be doing really well, better than you. Maybe 
They look happier than you. But the reality is, when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, without the imputed righteousness of God, their sin will destroy them. Not because they are worse than us. Number three, there's a truth about its deliverer, ambassadors, Paul's language. The ministry of reconciliation is entrusted to us as ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. To God. When you think about ambassadors for Christ, um, we this is what not to do. It sounds good, like a God's giving us a, like a best salesman deal to it. I know the implication is far more than that. The ambassadors do not speak on their own mind. They do two things. Represent the sovereign, either king or the sovereign nation. And they deliver the message of the sovereign, not their own message. So that means the two implications through that is if I am not going with my authority and my power, I have nothing to be afraid of. Because it is God's authority and message that I bring. If they do reject me, actually they're rejecting Christ. On the other hand, if they accept I don't get the glory because I'm just delivery boy. You are delivery boy and girl. God gets the glory. So think about it. Paul's message didn't originate from himself. When Paul spoke, God spoke the same way when Christians like you and me speak the message of reconciliation, God speaks through us. I, I learned it in a very tangible way. A couple of weeks ago, um, I officiated this funeral. I did. I, I, I've done so many funerals in, in my pastoral ministry, so I didn't think of it as special. But because of the request, I said yes, not realizing how big this event was. Kate's um, Minnesota friend, they grew up together, family friend, and kind of strange thing is Kate's. Uh, younger brother, who is about three years younger than him. Remember, he died about six, seven years ago. Freak accident happened. 
They're about the same age, and their sisters were Kate's age, and they called Kate. He's a traffic officer in L.A., and he was giving, speeding, uh, uh, giving parking ticket to this car, and then the car accident happened. One of the cars spun out and struck him, and he died. 45, 40, <laughs> young guy. His, the, their sister, his sisters were just heartbroken. Their aging parents were just nonstop crying because of that. And then Kate told me their relationship. So at the time, Crossway is going through a lot of things. So I'm, I'm not sure I could do this. But because autopsy and whatnot, they got pushed back. So on a, I had two weeks to work on to give a room. So yes, I'll do it. And uh, the police department decided to honor him. And he was a Navy veteran as well. The Navy got involved, and Hollywood uh, Hills, uh, Forest Lawn, and they gave us this, you know, um, address. And I, when I dropped off my parents-in-law and Kate at their place, and I drove down there, I, I got there one hour early, unusually early. When I when I officiate funeral, maybe 30 minutes early. One hour early. These traffic officers' cars everywhere. The building was a thousand seat. City of Mayor. I thought it was a, some small city, town. No, he's the city, the mayor of Los Angeles was speaking right in front of me. The police, all decked out uniform and traffic officers, and then mayor of Los Angeles spoke right before me. And then I'm supposed to preach. <laughs> they gave me 20 minutes. And I wanted to translate some things for the, uh, the parents in Korean. So I wanted to set aside five minutes for that. The 15 minutes. I don't get nervous when I preach anymore. I got really nervous. <laughs> then the mayor, as a good politician, his speech was just wonderfully articulate, very touching. And I got up there. And this passage came to my mind. As I'm praying, Lord, help me be bold to preach the gospel without compromise. Not sugarcoating. These are the people, I will never have this kind of a, this many non-Christians sitting in one, one hole and I get to preach. Help me, Lord. And this passage came to me. Paul, the message that I gave you, it's not yours. You are representing me. So I looked at them. I knew, I knew there was a Holy Spirit giving me courage and bold 
I clearly said, I'm praying for peace of God for the, for the family and for all of you, the colleagues who are grieving this process. But the prerequisite for, prerequisite for peace of God is peace with God. Unless God has reconciled with you, you cannot fully experience peace of God. And I, I don't know where that came from, but <laughs> you are not here by coincidence. You think you're paying due to respect your colleague. But God has message for you. Be reconciled to God. That's already done in Christ. It must be the Holy Spirit. Because I, I, I got it done, including Korean part, whole thing in about 17 minutes. I mean, I had a really high respect. I had a high respect for these police officers. The one who is coordinating, minute by minute, I, made me think about Tuang. Like, oh, one, oh, two, this minute. And then keep on coming up to me. If you are, you know, going longer, remember the officers will be standing out there in the sun. And, you know, they, they all line up and there's a gun salute and all those things are happening. I have to be precisely on time. But with all that going on, I was an ambassador. Not because I'm a pastor, but because Christ, in Christ Jesus has given each one of us that privilege, that responsibility. Paul didn't say, I am an ambassador. We are ambassadors, each one of us. The problem is, are we an ambassador in closet somewhere hiding? Or are we an active ambassador? Number four, truth about justice. The, the ministry of reconciliation is made possible by Christ's substitution in all sinners' place for every sin's just payment on the cross. I'm going to raise the question, but I'm giving you answers already. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Obviously, Christ, who knew no sin, God made him sin, to be sin. The theologically very important concept, but before that, let's think about this. The hyper-grace uh, culture in which you will live. Oh, that's great. God loves everyone and forgives everyone. Yeah, I want to do that too. I want to do just 
accept everyone, love, and you know, love wins all, can we all get along, kind of thing. But the question is, how can God be just and righteous if he doesn't bring justice in sin and injustice done by sinners? Case in point. Imagine, God, God forbid this will never happen. Someone molested your daughter and killed. And then you are at the court, and he's done it several times. And empirical forensic data affirms it and proves it without beyond the shadow of doubt. The criminal said, guilty as convicted. Yes, honor, I did all that. I am so sorry. As a matter of fact, I am terribly sorry. Could you forgive me once? I won't do that again. And then you see the judge saying, yeah, I think you're sincere. I forgive you. You're free to go. Don't do it again. How would you feel? Where is the justice? You know, in this dying world, so many, all kinds of wacky things happening, injustice happens, and criminals, not only criminals in the law, but criminals in our heart, you, like you and me, have done secret sins. Injustice, unrighteousness has been done. If God doesn't bring everything equalized, God is not holy God. So this reconciliation is not just a hunky-dory, everybody get along kind of thing. Steep price has been paid by God by sending His Son in our behalf as if He is the Son, that, the sin that we all committed. Not only past, the present, and future sins. Placed on that cross, on Him, who knew no sin. And that substitutionary atonement for every sin committed has been paid. And God is still righteous, still just. I tremble at the, at the fact that God can punish every single believer's, every single unbeliever's sin. Either two ways, by the sinner himself, herself, or by the substitute. The Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world.
brothers and sisters, the warning for us is not to think of grace of God as an easy thing. There's nothing we could contribute. But it costed everything on God's part. Why? God cares about our holiness. God cares about our transformation to become like His Son. And that leads to our final truth, the truth about its appeal. The ministry of reconciliation is not to be received in vain and without delay. It's right time. It's now. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The one question that we might have is, if God has done everything by his grace, and it is free gift, why is language about appeal to you in the passage before I implore you, I beg you. Because our default mode, we love sin more than holiness. Sinners love darkness. That's why sinners do not come to God who is the light. The exposure that happens. But obviously, the, the nature of that is a spiritual battle as well, right? The Satan deceives us, puts us a lie that this is too much to pay, just to simply, humbly receive. So you know um, who's more difficult? The people who are just treacherous in their lifestyle. They know they're sinners. The people who are relatively highly moral, don't cheat in taxes, they don't sleep around, they're law-abiding citizens, they have a nice, behaving kids, they go to church once in a while and I appeal to you. Like Paul says, I said, I'd rather achieve it myself. It's humiliating to receive things freely. That's why he said that that quote is actually not mine. I need to give Larry Kraft. One time he spoke in a conference that unless God's grace shocks you, it will not transform you. What does it mean to not to receive the grace of God in vain? We need to think about what 
it does not mean first. One is, you receive God's grace freely and you have, you have salvation, but be careful, because if you don't really pay attention, you could lose that salvation. It's absolutely false. The sovereign will of election of God is absolutely God's work, and he will finish from our salvation from the beginning to end. That's what sovereign grace looks like. But, but going on the other say, say um, maybe that means you just need to continually try to live a Christian life, better Christian life. Work harder at it. I think as much as that's dangerous, this is dangerous as well. Because the question is, if one has been really experienced regeneration, rebirth, there is a life, there is a desire to live for God, there is a desire to please God. If there isn't any, and all these well-meaning people treat him or her like Christians and act, tell him and tell her to act more like Christian, it's like a, to, to saying to the dead person to some things like a live person does. Yes, you, you know what I mean? It's not one way or the other. You, if you are really living in limbo, parable of to, a sore. Think about four different kinds of soils. The roadside, the birds picks it up right away. But there are people who are thorny ground. The word of God is uh, sowed. And then initially received well, but because it, it, the root doesn't go down, it doesn't grow. So still no salvation, no salvation. The only good soil bears the fruit. This one out of four only has true salvation, true love, true life. So what it means is to receive the grace of God in vain is to receive it superficially. Keith Green's famous phrase, just because you go to McDonald's, you don't become Big Mac. I, I might be paraphrasing here. <laughs> just because you go to church, you don't become a saved person. In, in Corinthians' context, it, it was directly related to receiving what Paul has given them in the beginning of their salvation, the true gospel, they're holding on to that so that they don't lose that. They don't become, come out as a never-been-saved person. The proof is continually today that whether we are experiencing God's transforming work or not. And as you know, that our church is 
reform in theology, in other words, Calvinism, is continued God-centeredness. Uh, the whole view of salvation is God carries the salvation so we don't ever lose, salva lose salvation. Arminianism, on the other hand, there are Christians also too. They're the well-meaning uh, friends uh, who are Christians. Their freedom of men, freedom of person becomes the first step rather than God's servant. So if you reject it, if you backslide, you could lose salvation. So there are disagreements, right? But one thing both parties agree is that currently is that person experiencing salvation, transformation of God's grace. Then that is the evidence. Oh, 20 years ago, he, he or she used to live like this and experiencing joy of the Lord. But now I treat it away. Calvinism is maybe he's never been saved. This person, the Arminian, will say he backslid and he lost his salvation. He needs to come back to God to restore that salvation. But both parties, that's it. That's what he's saying. Its appeal is that in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next year, not beginning of the year as a New Year's resolution. When, I'm gonna, when am I going to act like a Christian? When will I forgive the person who offended me? Not tomorrow, today. When will I pick up the scripture and fight for joy in God? Now that new quiet time rest is out. When will I struggle my inability to do relationship well, but continue to strive in community life. In, in my woman's group, my men's group, my home group. Today. I close with this. Arbut Barnes, one of the commentaries writes, we are the ambassadors whom Christ has sent forth to negotiate with men in regard to their reconciliation to God. They are sent to do what the sovereign would himself do were, were he present. They are sent to make known the will of the sovereign and to negotiate matters of commerce, of war, or of peace, and in every, in general, everything affecting the interest of the sovereign among the people to whom they are sent. Of course, they are to seek the honor of the sovereign who has sent them forth, and to seek to do only his will. They go not to promote their own welfare, not to speak 
honor, dignity, or emolument, but they go to transact the business which the Son of God would engage in were he again personally on earth. It follows that their office is one of the great dignity and great responsibility and that respect should be show them as the ambassadors of the king of kings. Our message is to be regarded as the message of God. It is God who speaks. What we say to you is said, is said in his name and on his authority and should be received with the respect which is due to a message directly from God. The gospel message is God speaking to men through the ministry and entreating them to be reconciled. This invests the message which the ministers and every Christian bear with infinite dignity and solemnity. And it makes a fearful and awful thing to reject it. Two things as we close. Would you receive God's reconciliation humbly and thankfully? Let that grace of God transform you. Number two, would you be an active ambassador for Christ? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much. For this privilege that you've given us. We as, as reconciled people in Christ. That you have given this privilege and responsibility. To be ambassadors for Christ. You've given us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Lord. To your mighty work and your spirit may whisper to our hearts that we may be changed in our attitude, in our posture, in our hardened hearts, especially for those people whom we think we care about around us. Change our church that our compassion will lead us to prayer and heartache for the people who need the message of reconciliation. And we love our brothers and sisters who are in that remote country, remote places in the world. We pray for Bob and Grace, and John and Sarah, Boy and Cindy, and as Wade and Helen prepares to go, fill them with the Holy Spirit. And Sovereign Lord, send us into our neighborhood 
into our workplaces with the message of reconciliation. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.